Welcome to Speaking of Strong Style, where we discuss the news, issues, and events surrounding New Japan Pro Wrestling. I'm Stephen Conway. With me, as always, is Jeremy Feinstone. We are contributors to the Fight Game Media Network. We're very excited to be here with you here. And going over a lot of things, Jeremy, a lot of news, as always. It's been a very busy week. We had a non-New Japan show that involved key New Japan talent today in the Tokyo Dome. We're going to talk about that, of course. We're going to be breaking down a very good Battle in the Valley show from San Jose. We have happen to have a correspondent right here on the show with us. Oh, hello. About that. Yes, <laughs> hi. Uh, we're going to preview Fantastica Mania. We're going to run down the anniversary show and the New Japan Cup. There's so many things going on, Jeremy, but I'm going to start with this. You, of course, were live in person there at the San Jose Civic Center where they had Battle in the Valley we're going to go over the matches. We're going to talk about yes, it. But sir. what were your just overall impressions of being there for that night of wrestling, seeing the New Japan start? What was it like? Tell us about it a little bit. You know, I've been there a couple of times. The San Jose Civic is an awesome place to go see wrestling. Um, if you've watched the San Jose shows before that have had New Japan or the Strong or whatever, uh, you've seen the venue before. It is not incredibly conducive for internet connection. And uh, there have been a number of reasons that they have blamed in the past where I think it became abundantly clear tonight that the venue is just terrible for internet in the Silicon Valley. With that said, once we got that hiccup out of the way, I think there was maybe like one match that let me down, but otherwise the entire card top to bottom looked just uh, a fantastic experience. Uh, I think I might've seen the best women's match I've ever seen live. Uh, at any show I've ever been to, uh, as I was thinking about that earlier today. And just generally an unforgettable experience because that's a level of card you're not really going to get on a random Saturday that is not AEW or WWE. Yeah, it was a very special night. And of course, like I mentioned, we're going to break it down. But let's talk a little bit about some of the issues just briefly because they really sure. didn't affect the show. But there was a 45-minute delay in the program for the people that were watching on TV, on Fight TV like I was. We had no sound for the pre-show at all. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, those matches weren't anything spectacular, but it was a little bit frustrating. And then just a total delay there. It's a very old building. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a building that's been around a long time. It's seen a lot of historic performances. I mean, just about every band you've ever thought of could be there. I took my wife to a Who's Line Is It Anyways live show the night before because I was looking <laughs> through the card. I'm like, oh, you know, I'm like, I'm going out the night before. I should find something to do with me and the wife. So got a really classic Who's Line Is It Anyways the night before. It was just super fantastic. I, I just moved to the San Jose area and I got a chance to, you know, really get a feel for after six months, just a vibe for the downtown area and walking. I walked every night to the Civic and then I went to the IMAX to see Ant-Man because we're going to do a review of Ant-Man and Quantum Mania later tonight for Fight Game Podcast. Cheap plug there. So I had to do the podcast, uh, had to do the research for that. But when we're getting back to the Civic, it's, it's an old building. Yes. Uh, the infrastructure, but you're in Silicon Valley. So right. like the whole joke is that like, Really, you're right next to Google. You're real. You're next to like downtown San Jose, this infrastructure, and you can't get a signal out. What kind of junior varsity operation? <laughs> well, we, like we you deserve laughing. to be called junior varsity for that. We were laughing about that too. One of the things I thought of was <clears throat> because of the location, 
half the people in the proud the crowd probably could have fixed the problem if they were let back into the truck <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> we were talking about it's like does anybody know like you ever see the thing it's a doc there is there a doctor in the house you're like well is there a, sure. is there a tech genius in the house like yes I, but uh so there once it started the one thing i'm happy about jeremy is i didn't get the idea that once they started that they cut anything for time it felt like no. we got the entire show no no it was uh, you, we got all the time in the cards. And like, if you saw those main events, like you knew that the priority was like making Mercedes Monet shine that night with the match times and all that. So there was a top to bottom. You know, there were jokes that like New Japan fears Roman, so they wanted to delay the show <laughs> uh, to make sure that people could watch uh, that. That's not the case. Uh, the merch line was super long. The merch line was incredibly long. But that was mm-hmm. also not the reason that they did that. They opened the doors at 5.30, 45 minutes before uh, to get in. I got there at 5.40 just to maybe, you know, merch line all that. It wrapped around the lobby twice. Wow. Wow. So wow. the New Japan, when it comes to the, the Bay Area, is a huge, huge merch mover. It's a fantastic uh set up and like a kind of a, a hit uh, a hit for the New Japan when they're stateside. You know, they're once a year kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, just it was a lot of fun. I went with John LaRocca, Garrett Gonzalez, the Heartbreak Kid, David Rubio, and Brian Rue, a lot of guys through the Fight Game Media. And uh, we always like to just get together and do this. And we saw uh, Impact talent there, CM Punk. We saw their <laughs> CM uh, Punk showed up. Yeah, Moody Angeli, No Way Jose, <laughs> Bailey was there. I did not see her, but there was queer photo- photographic evidence. It just seemed like the night where everybody was just like, we got this is the place to be. That's very cool. And I don't know if you saw this, but uh, for, uh, we, well, before I get into that, before I get into that, we're going to get off track. First thing I want to mention is this uh, show is also available as a podcast now. Just want to make sure we mention yeah. that. Don't forget about that. Uh, we're available on Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, uh, iHeartRadio Podcasts. Make sure you check that out. Subscribe to us. Give us the five-star rating. It helps people find the show, all that stuff. We're working on Apple Podcasts. There's a bit of a snafu there. Working with support to get us up and running on that. So, <clears throat> And just want to mention generation today from JJ Williams of JJ Williams Wrestling Observer Newsletter. <laughs> Very nice. And uh, yeah, that, that, he's done some amazing stuff. So we're going to be seeing some of his work here. And uh, just wanted to mention all those, all those people coming in. Uh, and, and I don't know if you saw the Mercedes Monet documentary that she basically dropped. It's not a documentary, it's a bit of a stretch, but video that she dropped the night before on her YouTube feed. If you haven't, it's worth it's worth looking. It shows her just how excited she was mm-hmm. about making her debut. And you mentioned Bailey being there. Bailey went all the way to Japan for Wrestle Kingdom. I mean, she mm-hmm. left after Raw and showed up. Trinity Fatu was there, of course, you know, but uh, you know, it just shows you how, how close those two are. Not only was she And then she Canada, flew back that, to Canada for Raw on Monday night. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, of course, San Jose is where Bailey's from, too. So it's an yep. easy trip for her, but uh, it doesn't have to be an easy trip. I was just mentioning she just went to she went to the Tokyo Dome and was there with her there. So um, <clears throat> always cool to see that kind of support. And she even mentioned that uh, both Triple H and William Regal sent nice messages to her before the Tokyo Dome show. So uh, what I took from that is that there is a little bit of open communication, does not appear to be spectacularly hard feelings in either direction, and that uh, maybe someday uh, they may work together again. In the meantime, I think we have some really great stuff coming toward us with Mercedes Monet in New Japan and stardom. So, 100%. Absolutely. Now, we're going to get to that, but we want to talk about this Tokyo Dome show because there was a Keiji Mudo show at the Dome today. 
very early today. Uh, and it was, of course, his retirement show. It involved a lot of key New Japan talent. And for New Japan, this show was a roaring success. For Noah, I'm not sure, Jeremy, but let's talk about how this all, all goes through. Now, first of all, it was a success in terms of uh, attendance because darn near 31,000 people showed up for this thing. It was a solid crowd, a real good crowd. You know and, who else was in attendance? Where? In the Dome? Yeah. No, Fight Game Media's own Justin Nipper, and he, he was, was commentating, yeah. much to the surprise of everybody here at Fight Game Media. <laughs> he kept a little Justin Nipper of Write That Down with Fumi Saito, also recent guest host of this show, if you want to go check that out. Yeah. We had a commentator on a NOAA New Japan show guest host this show less than a month ago. Oh, I cool, do want yeah. you all to know that. We we run into pretty cool circles over here. We're in with the office over here. We're in. We're in. We're, 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 we're in with the in crowd. We've never met the office, but we're in with them. We're, but, but they like us. Yeah, they like us. So no, but big congratulations to Justin. I know Absolutely. he had to be thrilled to be doing that, and uh, it very well deserved. And I saw some of the pictures from him in Japan with uh, Fumi and things. So I'm sure there's going to be great stuff on their show as well, which is available on the Fight Game Media Network podcast feed and is always worth a listen that show there that write this down with uh with fumi and justin <clears throat> so had uh and we're not going to go over the entire card because there were a lot of matches that didn't involve new japan we're a new japan podcast and show here on youtube so there were three, we're just going right? to talk about three, the stuff but they were in all the key ones there were Say three again? big ones yeah really yeah and what the biggest one was, of course, Tetsuya Naito facing Keiji Muto in his <laughs> what is allegedly his final match. Which like, <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. <clears throat> Worked till the end. <laughs> so in this match here, uh, Tetsuya Naito against Keiji Muto in Muto's final match. And there have been a lot of final matches. There was his final match in New Japan. There was uh, the Great Muto's final match. There was Great Muto's final match in New Japan. And Korokan, there's a lot of finals. But in this one... Uh, Lasted a little while here. This one was almost a half an hour match, which is pretty amazing that Mudo was able to do that, considering how difficult it is for Mudo to really get moving anymore. His body is beat up. Uh, of course, we he's had thousands upon thousands of matches, and he did not work in easy style. So a lot of that has come back to, to, to roost, come home to roost. There was a lot of leg work in this match, which makes a lot of sense because Mudo can still do things like basement drop kicks. He can still pull out a shining wizard when he needs to. He can still do dragon screws. So leg work makes a lot of sense. Plus, he actually did something very difficult, which is he got the figure four back over in Japan in the, in the 1990s. <laughs> after it was kind of seen as a cheese ball move a little bit, uh, he actually got the figure four in Japan. I mean, it, Ric Flair kept it over in the United States, but it was not taken seriously for a while in Japan. Mudo got it back over. <clears throat> he teased his big moonsault, but those days are over. He he would tease it and he would climb back yeah, down. Like, no. like yeah, no, 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 it's a long <laughs> way down. Uh, some neat little Easter eggs in the match. He did uh, Hashimoto chops and an Emerald Flosion on Naito, which were tributes to both Shinya Hashimoto and Mitsuharu Masawa, who, of course, uh, passed away before they could have any kind of real retirement. I remember, uh, seeing any, the, uh, I remember seeing the bit online about uh, his respect for Mikawa and, yeah. and loving him, but not like not like homosexual love. And Mikawa being <laughs> like, what? What, what? what are you making this all weird for? <laughs> it was, those two had an interesting dynamic. And of course, <clears throat> when I started watching Japanese wrestling, those were the two biggest stars of the opposite promotions. Mm. Uh, Misawa was the number one guy for all Japan, part of the four pillars over there. Muto, part of the Three Musketeers in New Japan. And in the mid-90s, they were both having 
mind-blowing matches against very different opponents in very different ways. So the idea that there was a little bit of a kinship between the two is, is quite satisfying because they didn't really cross paths all that much, unfortunately, in their in their real primes. So uh, anyway, the, tributes to both of those men. Uh, Naito ended up winning the match with a Destino uh, after hitting a few shining wizards of his own. And that was in just under 29 minutes, 28.58. Oh, but that's not all, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was that was it, right, Jeremy? That was the retirement match. Kaiji Muto was done. Well, <clears throat> he ended up challenging Masahiro Chono, who was on commentary, to one last match. And so the, the, his last match, his last match was known. not his last match. He, he pulled a Terry Funk on us immediately. Uh, Muto challenged Chono. They had a very quick one. It was one minute and 37 seconds. It was pretty much a lockup. Uh, Muto slapped him, knocked him down, hit a shining wizard because that's just the, the move of the night, and then put on his trademark STF for a quick tap out. So <clears throat> we're going to talk a little bit later about his very early years, Muto's. It was, it was a nice little way to come back to the beginning because his career began and ended in a singles match against uh, Masahiro Chono. So uh, his very first pro wrestling match was a win over Chono. His very last one was a loss to Chono. So I suppose there's a little bit of poetic justice there, even though it's uh, a little silly that it was his last match. And I'll go on the record right now as saying, I believe that Keiji Muto will wrestle again by the end of 2024 anyway. So I don't think it's I, the You're last probably one right. I just, I am 100% dying on the inside at the idea that Naito did all this work to push this match knowing full well that it wasn't even going to be the final match. Yeah. Oh, just a bunch of fucking workers, man. I love it. <laughs> hey, <you> know, <clears throat> that's the way it went. Tip so of the cap to you. <laughs> now, the other match that was intriguing to us was Kazuchika Okada, IWGP World Heavyweight Champion, taking on GHC Champion, so that's Noah's top title, Kato Kiyomiya in a singles match. And, of course, we saw Kiyomiya do that kick to the face, that little Akira Maeda, Ricky Choshu <laughs> throwback move, uh, where it looked like the match got out of hand at uh, Wrestle Kingdom's second night there uh, when they had the Noah New Japan show. After that, Okada pretended like he was above the fray, wasn't interested in a match with Kiyomiya, wasn't even that upset about it, just felt it wasn't uh, worth his time, so to speak, <laughs> until they were all in Osaka. And we found out just how pissed off Kazushika Okada really was about that move there at the Wrestle Kingdom. So he attacked Kiyomiya from behind after a title match against Jack Morris, laid him out with the Rainmaker and said he would see him in the Tokyo Dome. Well, he did. We kind of figured, Jeremy, it would be either one of two finishes, and we were wrong. <laughs> we thought it would Damn, either tonight, be... I was way off. <laughs> it would either be a 30-minute draw, because neither title's on the line. So sure. The, the time limit was 30 minutes. Or they would have Kiyomiya win this thing. <clears throat> Thus, the champion goes over on the Noah show, and then he can challenge for the IWGP title later. There's all kinds of things you can do. They did none of it. <laughs> they just had Okada beat him, which is <laughs> puzzling, okay. but... Okay. So I yeah, have so, to give what do you Justin like? Nipper credit here. Okay. Because when he was on, he he talked about this and he explicitly said that he thought that this should be a five year program. That there should okay. not be any instant gratification on this. That even if they have matches, like the real payoff should be at least two, three, five years away for the ultimate like what this is going to be much like the Okada Tanahashi uh, like 
passing of the reigns 10 years ago there there there's something very similar to everything that is going on with this in 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 just japanese pro wrestling so i give him credit because he saw the long-term value of really keeping this relationship alive through that feud and it's clear that that's what they're going to do because this was a dominant win by okada in a lot of ways well it's intriguing in a lot of ways too uh just in the context of the whole evening so uh oddly enough kiyomiya wanted the time limit removed and okada accepted that before the match Mm -hmm. but then he didn't need it because instead of him beating him in 30 minutes okada ended up hitting a tombstone and a rainmaker he then he pulled kiyomiya up before the three count then hitting an enzugiri which is of course his big enoki move we talked about how he he is (laughs) Showing himself as the new Inoki. Uh, he even wore black trunks, a battle in the valley for Inoki, uh, although it's the usual Okada trunks and not the, the Inoki ones. Uh, he hit an, uh, uh, the Cobra Flosion and then the Rainmaker for a pin on the Noah champion on the Noah show. That's so there bold. you go. That's bold. <laughs> now, I tell you what, Noah's got to get a win back, right, Jeremy? So yes. we, ha- we have the, ju- the junior champions are facing each other, and there's going to be a junior show on March 1st. They could have a rematch. They could do all kinds of things. So we're going to have Amakasa, the GHC junior heavyweight champion, facing IWGP junior heavyweight champion Hiromu Takahashi. Now's the time, isn't it, Jeremy, where Noah gets its big win back? No. Yikes, bud. <laughs> Hiromu Takahashi <laughs> defeated Amakasa in a whopping 11 minutes and two seconds after two time bombs. Hmm. Okay. I can, right. Okay. Okay. To be fair, I thought right. that this was the most likeliest of outcomes. Oh, of yeah. All three matches. Yeah. Roma winning this match seemed like far away. Like just, just put that one up there. That's the freebie. Like the lock yeah. of the week. Yeah. And in that sense, you would just hope that Amakusa was in a similar spot as master wato was at the tokyo dome where his career will be helped if he has a great match with hiroma right that's where he was and uh, as it turns out he did it he did the law he did take the loss right there i heard it was a decent match either way but there you go so there was one other there's a nosawa retirement match so this is one it's taiji shimori and ghetto ghetto okay ghetto and ghetto's the guy that always loses on new japan shows when he puts them in the matches here's where noah's going to get a victory no no. Uh, so Nosawa Rongai in his retirement match with uh, he teamed up with Mazada and uh, against Ishimori and Ghetto. Nosawa basically gave him up, gave himself up to Taiji Ishimori for Ishimori to hit the bloody cross and pin him in four minutes and 43 seconds. So in all four matches in which a Noah wrestler faced a New Japan wrestler, the New Japan wrestler won. And not only that, be both of their champions. <laughs> the, the retirement matches are one thing. You figure you're going to, especially in Japan, you usually lose your retirement matches. But the only thing I could think of for those 30,000 people, and I understand the New Japan wrestlers pretty much sold the tickets to this show. Well, Muto, but Muto, Naito, yeah. Okada, the idea of Okada being on a Noto. The main uh, event Noto. sold the show. Like, yeah. <clears throat> but they, they, you know, the New Japan guys were a big part of that draw. But the, for the people that left, I can't imagine them thinking much else, but the message to those people being, what are you doing watching this stuff? All the good people are on New Japan. <laughs> you know, so, like, and so ah, I, I understand this is part of a long-term thing, but uh, whew, yeah, I mean, I, the Flaming Shark just mentioned it right here. <laughs> live. Ima- imagine the, the, 
the flaming shark. I love it. Uh, imagine Ghetto getting a win on a Noah show in 2023. I didn't imagine it that much. I didn't think he would. But uh, when I guess when you see it, it's 2023 a, a, coming at you hard. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's. I understand it's a retirement match. You usually lose them. Ishimori is the one that got the pin, not Ghetto, and all that. And there's a lot of history between all these people and all that stuff. But boy, uh, the the message was pretty clear here that New Japan's the top dog. It's true, but. Did they need to prove the point that hard, Jeremy? It, the politics in Japan between the wrestling companies are clearly far different than what we are conditioned to on this uh, on this continent in North America, and so I, I I no longer can approach it with that sensibilities of North American business practices because, right. like that. There is a lot of good faith that these companies are going to be working together in the foreseeable future for this to happen, because there has to be at some point, you know, a tipping of the scales, the talent and the Noah end really needs to have some type of obstacle to overcome, which they do now, you know, you have, uh, you have the, the Congo, uh, faction you now have kiamia you have this growing core of no people that are increasingly getting mad that they either cannot seem to get the upper hand knowing that they are probably as good but they just are finding themselves in situations that they cannot overcome rather than these are lesser wrestlers which is not i think the goal of what they're doing here oh, but not, they but... are running they are running that risk they, yeah, they're running the rest. And, and there's a, a comment from Brad Reeder right here um, saying that as someone who doesn't watch a lot of, no, there it is, uh, these results tell me just stick with New Japan. Yeah, I kind of, I, I kind of agree that that's the message sent. Uh, Brad, yeah, I, I'm with you on that. And as far as obstacles to overcome, I understand that concept too. But the obstacle is that they're working for the smaller company. And so they're already the underdog walking into the thing. And it would have helped them a lot more to get the win. Uh, a win for the love of God. <laughs> something. I mean, win it something. Could be one now of they beat. It, it was it like could... it was almost like a hierarchy because they beat the All Japan team in a Noah versus All Japan, and then it was uh, a win over I believe the DDT promotion, the Dragon Gate promotion down on the card. So Noah beat everybody except the New Japan guys, but didn't get a win over New Japan. And I, I'm sure if if this is part of a long-term storyline and we'll be seeing more chapters of it, I'm certainly open to that. Every time I watch Noah, I enjoy it. Um, and so I'm happy to see these guys more. I, I, it's always fun. So if this is a long-term thing, I will try to be patient. But this was a strange way to start it all off. I legitimately hope that this wasn't a politics game. Like, well, we'll give you this talent for Muto's last love, but they all have to win. You know, mm. if it, it could be something as simple as that on this and, and good faith operations moving forward will uh, set some equilibrium, but they had to, you know, like put you through a little bit of pace. Like, are we going to be able to play ball with each other? Like on a hard, like, you know, just yeah. kind of a, like a loyalty kind of agreement kind of thing. So it could be something like that. The flaming shark here. Yeah. It feels like a slow burning storyline of the Noah guys getting showed up at every turn and going to eventually lead to something though for sure i i 100 hope so because yeah. if if this is playing out on the screen rather than behind the scenes that is far more compelling to anyone being involved in in the action 
All right. So we will head now to Battle in the Valley. That was back on Saturday in a sold-out Civic Auditorium, 2,155 people. And, uh, you know, I, one thing that New Japan never really does well in the United States is Mike the Crowd. Uh, was this an enthusiastic uh, group there live and in person, Jeremy? If you could not tell that the crowd was molten for Mercedes Monet, then there's obviously Mike issues. The crowd was the crowd was hot, and they were excited, especially for uh, talent they recognized that as maybe like not totally New Japan crowd. Uh, Kenta was recognized because he was San Jose NXT slash WWE. He was at that famous show, um, the WWE show in Mania that was a half mile down the street. So um, there was definitely like bits and pieces. Mike wise, I've heard it was awful in, in there. Yeah. The energy yeah. was real. Okay, very good. I'm glad to hear that. So we are going to start with um, we're going to start with the double main events and then we'll work our way backwards. And uh, I'm going to begin with the big news of the day anyway, which was Mercedes Monet's first New Japan pro wrestling uh, match. And she came out and faced Kyrie for the IWGP Women's Championship. And this was a wonderful match and they needed to do a a good match. And I knew that they were going to, these two women are too talented to do much else, but there was pressure on this. I mean, if if she came out and had some, and there were some awkward moments, if there was something, people were going to be on her like crazy. I think both of them came through beautifully. This was a terrific match. She had a very cool entrance. Uh, Mercedes did with uh, dancers and everything there. Uh, so it, it stood out. It looked different than anybody else. She had a Hanakamura inspired outfit. So as far as I'm concerned, she's hitting all the right notes for someone entering a, the promotion, uh, beginning with a new company, paying tribute to Hana. Uh, that entrance was fabulous. Once the match began, Kyrie works stiff, <laughs> and she did here. And what I liked was that Mercedes gave it right back because she probably doesn't get hit that hard that often in WWE. Not saying never, but Kyrie works pretty snug. And uh, Kyrie had some good sustained offense at around the 12-minute mark. Uh, she hit a diving forearm. It led to a meteora on the floor by Monet for, and from the, from, and then another one from the top for a two-count. And you thought, okay, they're building toward the finish, but we were only halfway through this match at that point, Jeremy. They went long. And as this longest one went match on, of the night. longest match of the night, as this thing went on, can you tell us a little bit about the energy in the room? Because 12 minutes in, starting to hit big moves, and you just think, oh, okay, we got three or four minutes left. But this just kept building and building and building. Uh, tell us about the energy, please. So I think I think it kind of went into overdrive when they went into the crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had they went up the ramp, and mm-hmm. then uh, they they were doing the move, and they ended up down at the bottom, mm-hmm. and they pulled out the table. Yes, guaranteed and, and, pop at any wrestling show, no matter what. Like holy Moses, when that table got pulled out, and they, I believe they saved the table for that because they didn't do a table uh, in the in the Lawler Homicide match. They did a door, right. they did a ladder, <laughs> they did a number of other plunder. But they saved the table for that, and it was one of the biggest pops of the night. Mm-hmm. And it looked fantastic, too, by the uh, way. I, just, I, I have oh, nothing ahead, other than just positive, positive things to say about it. Just yeah. the vibe, the energy. By the time we got, by the time we got to that like 20-minute mark and we were still going, uh, 
everyone was just like, this, I don't want this to end yet. I don't mm-hmm. want this to end yet. <laughs> like yeah. just keep it going. And then, you know, it, it ended naturally, but it didn't, it didn't feel like it ended when we needed it to. Yeah. And it's fascinating to me that uh, this match just kept building the way it did. And I'm going to go into some of it because uh, she still used the bank statement, her move, but now she kind of uses it as a setup thing. It's not her finisher anymore. Uh, There was a terrific moment when uh, Kyrie hit a vicious looking Alabama slam to set up her, the insane elbow, as they called it in WWE. It's the best elbow drop in professional wrestling, just flings herself in the air. And it's a great visual. But Monet actually, uh, after the Alabama slam, Monet grabbed Kyrie's ankle to keep her from climbing. And I absolutely love that. That was a nice little touch right there. She couldn't uh, jump yet. There was... Uh, one thing that popped me, and I'm sure it did you too, but uh, Mercedes hit a Bailey to belly right there in the match. We all just, we went nuts. Everybody yeah. just kind of, and it came out, it came out of nowhere. And it looked just like it, you didn't expect her to hit it, but when she hit it, it looked just like, okay, she is not ignoring the fact that she was at one time a Sasha Bates. This is yeah. an evolution of who she is as a wrestler and mm-hmm. not like I'm ignoring everything that came before. And I am, I'm just way into it. Hey, Colin. Hey, I see Colin has joined us. Uh, excellent. I was hoping we'd see him in here. So, uh, yeah. So, no, And the Flaming Shark has some more. He's really uh, hitting it on the comments, too. And we'll, we'll get into this in a moment. But they, it felt like they almost held back for a rematch down the line as great as this was. I don't but, know if uh, they held back. <laughs> I don't know. But it's an intriguing thought. Because, I mean, you know, they, they didn't do the thing. She hasn't kicked out of the insane elbow, though, has she? So, uh Okay, yeah, I got a question for you, though. In fact, because she she threw it, and Mercedes got her boots up in a pretty dangerous move right there for uh, Kyrie's shoulder and, and blocked the diving elbow with the boots. So uh, it was good. And also a crossface by Kyrie sending a little message, hey, I can do that move, but Monet bit her hand. So excuse me, go ahead with your question. No, I got I got, I got, got a question for us. We're all talking about what Mercedes Monet has got going on next, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we all just see this, like, catalog of matches. She's got a challenge from AZM. Uh, you know, maybe she's got something in Multiverse United. Impact was there at um at the show, and I feel like there are matches that they could do. Um, but what does Kyrie have lined up next? Like, is she is she under contract with Stardom? Could she go somewhere else? This could this does kind of feel like she she was free agent exactly a year ago this week on February eighteenth, twenty twenty two. She's done a year on the Indies. She might be looking and thinking, like, what's next here or there? Mm-hmm. So is she under contract? Could she go to, you know, she liked mm-hmm. Paul at WWE. You know, AEW could use someone like her talent. What's next for Kyrie? That's the question I want to keep an eye out for. And I'm hoping that we get more of, just on a selfish note, I hope we get more of Kyrie in stardom because there are new matchups that haven't, taken place because she was gone for so many years right there. There's new talent there that she mm-hmm. hasn't wrestled yet. I would like to see that. So, but I also understand if, if, uh, if WWE wants to pay her to come back, you know, so <laughs> I, I don't think they really wanted to lose her in the first place. She asked uh, to leave because she was getting married. Uh, and so she went back to Japan then. So uh, a couple of things to note about that is one WWE didn't really want her to leave. They didn't really, they released her because she asked to be released, not because they wanted to release her. And second of all, she left because she got married, not because she was particularly unhappy with WWE. She might not have been thrilled that they weren't doing much with her. I don't know. She never said that publicly, but it does not appear like she said, uh, this is not a Mercedes and Trinity 
situation where they were like, screw this. I, sure. I can't, I can't do this garbage. Uh, so yeah, I will, there's a lot of options open for her. If she is on that deal where, uh, she just makes certain appearances, then I guess she can do anything uh, she wants. And, yeah, Jeremy, this is a wonderful time to be an in-demand free agent in pro wrestling right now between New Japan stardom, uh, AEW and WWE. It's a it's a nice time to be in demand. So they're, better they're, than the free far better than most. Wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, well, again, we mentioned this. Uh, she hit her big move. This is now where uh, she gets her opponent on her back with her arms hooked. I'm talking about Mercedes's big move, and then it sort of tosses them over. It's very difficult to explain right there. But she tried to do it at the Tokyo Dome, and the timing was off. The timing was perfect on this one. It turns into a bit of a swing around DDT. It's almost uh, like a sister Abigail, but the other person's yeah. off the ground. Yeah, like he, they do a around. flip around and, and or like a like. Jay White's moving a little bit, but there's like mm. there's an elevated aspect on the back, like a gory bomb into a DD. Yeah, kind of thing. yeah, and it is it is unusual. I don't think I've seen it before, and if I have, I haven't seen it much. So it, it works as a move if you can get the timing of it right. Look good uh, on Saturday for sure. Afterwards, everybody was emotional, handshakes and hugs between the two wrestlers, and then Mercedes headed back with her title and to a big ovation. Not the last we were going to be seeing of her, however. So. Oh, definitely not. And so we'll move on to this next one, which was Kazuchika Okada defending the IWGP World Heavyweight title against Hiroshi Tanahashi. So Look at that dropkick. Oh. Yeah, man. It is a storyline that Tanahashi's time on top or shots at the top is winding down. And this was sort of a possibly last match for him against Okada as Okada seems to be ascending to uh, God level, as we call it, I guess that we call that for, for uh, Roman Reigns, but particularly now that Okada is positioned as the new Inoki, this is going to be uh, a big exalted point for him. And not too many people are going to climb that mountain. You mentioned that you don't think he's going to lose this year. You might be right. Going into this, we knew that Tanahashi wasn't going to win the title here. There's just no question about it. I'm sure people in the crowd had that feeling too, but you just kind of hope for a good match. Was that the atmosphere going into this? Yeah, there was, there was just the vibe of like, we get to see Okada versus Tanahashi. And it was basically like handed to us on a silver platter. Everybody appreciated every moment that they had of it. The entrances, I, the, just like any seat in the house, you could see the, ring and you could see the person entering the ring and you could see them staring at each other and and it just like everybody's view was unobstructed so everybody saw the energy that they had with each other and they would and you could feel like the wrestlers when they were on the ring rope were staring like right at you it was that intimate of a venue and to have that and to have this match these two people just going out there and giving you what 17 minutes it felt like was it a little bit more than that 20 minutes i don't even know it just like time stood still and at 15 minutes i was like this has been a 15 minute match already that's unreal yeah so it just they're so smooth they're so great they're i just feel very lucky i'm just gonna leave it at that I felt the exact same way when I saw this match in Dallas because I had bought my tickets similar to you. I bought my tickets before the match was announced and I just figured I was going to get it the day went on sale. How often am I going to get to see a G1, you know, all that stuff. And then I also knew that it was opening night of G1 and they usually have a big match on opening night. Right. So 
when it came out that we were getting a match that has headlined a couple of wrestle kingdoms, I was out of my mind. And it's, there's a feeling that you're honored to be there for it. Like this is, this is something that you're going to be talking about for a long time. Uh, and, and it's very possible that they might do another one in Japan. But the fact that you did get to see these two all-time rivals uh, meet up uh, in, in another chapter of that rivalry is, is very special. So, you know, and the match was terrific. Uh, this was, you know, we mentioned that Tanahashi has good knee days and bad knee days. This is not one of the better ones. But uh, he still put together something really good. This man just so intelligent. He's such a smart worker. And Tana worked on Okada's leg with basement kicks and dragon screws. Okada came back with his big neck breaker and elbow drop. And like you said, before you know it, they're doing like a 15-minute time call on you. Uh, big moves, sling blades, drop kicks, falcon arrows. All of it's smooth and timing was perfect. Uh, Tanahashi hit an ace's high to the floor. That was pretty impressive. Uh, I felt like, I was like I've waited all my life to do that. <laughs> that was pretty impressive. And then he tried it again. And as you see from this photo that we have from our friend JJ here, uh, he ate an Okada drop kick on the way down on the aces high. Just looked fantastic. We we really got to get the drop kick out of nowhere, like meme going, much like RKO <laughs> out of nowhere. Because Ke Kevin Knight had a really great drop kick in the in the eight man match, but it's just. Okada doing that drop kick is just so cool and it's so fast. Like he got up off the ground and did a drop kick in like the time that Tanahashi, yes, his knees are not great, but it's still, he got up and, and pulled that move by the time Tanahashi was executing his great timing. The last gasp for Tanahashi came when he turned a rainmaker into a really nice inside cradle for a good two count. But after that, it was mostly Okada. He and Zugiri, again, he's made, really made that part of his finishing arsenal. Cobra Flosion, Rainmaker. Same sequence he used to beat Kiyomiya, really. And that was the pinfall victory. Again, it was a match where you just wanted to see this rivalry. We knew what the end result was going to be. Afterwards, an interesting note, though, was that he asked Tana to team up with him again and go after the tag team titles of his stablemates, Hiroki Goto and Yoshihashi, who had to be sitting I, back in Japan going, what the hell? We're, we're, I told we're on the same bus. He's like, we need to do this, like, the Mega Powers team again. And then Mercedes came out. I'm like, wait, is she, like, want to be a tag team with Okada instead? And, like, so yes. mixed past stardom? Like, are they, is she, yeah. is she doing that? And I didn't realize that this was just, like, he was trying to kill a couple birds with one stone. He's like, I got to get this promo out, but I also yeah. got to make sure that Mercedes over too. And mm. man, she looked just as much of a star as Okada in that ring. Yeah. And, and they got the whole thing with them posing together with the titles. They clinked the belts together, as you see right here. There was uh, a nice little uh, moment there where these two were, were talking to each other and congratulating each other and, and posing on the ring uh, ropes uh, as each uh, had their music played again uh, later. And uh, Okada's ended the night, but Mercedes was a big part of it. And uh, just a nice moment right there. These two huge stars walking out together. Uh, Monet had to be thrilled to be there. A lot of choices for Monet. Like you mentioned, Azumi is probably going to be the first uh, there I, because we don't know how many matches we're getting with Monet. I would like to just see her against the big faction leaders in stardom and let's get these big, great matches with these terrific workers in there while we can. Now you have Utami Hayashida, you have Tam Nakano, you have uh, certainly Shuri. I don't think we're going to see her in Julia, which I would love to see because Julia is almost as stiff as Kyrie sometimes, mm -hmm. but 
she's the world of stardom champion. She has the red belt. She's their number one person. And I think they're going to keep those two away from each other for the most part, because you don't really want either one losing to the other. And so they might do a 30 minute draw or something like that in there, but I don't really see a big title for title match with, with Julia Uh, as much as I would love to see Julia and Monet in the ring together, the money match, Jeremy, the one they have to figure out how to get in the ring, whether it's wrestle kingdom next year or whether it's, Dominion, as long as it works out fine, the money match is Monet and Mayu Iwatani, who is the all-time stardom icon, one of the greatest female workers of all time. Some people think she is the best female wrestler of all time. I'm in the Manami Toyota camp on that one myself, but Iwatani's up there. Iwatani's up. I'm not mad at anyone who thinks it's Iwatani. Iwatani. And I, I think that's the ultimate destination, that eventually that once the, you know, the foreign threat is vanquished and this is a little different than some of those, you know, the foreigners coming in and steamrolling things. But I think once it comes down to someone has to get that title back for stardom, it's going to be Mayu Iwatani. And that's probably going to be the best match Mercedes ever has in that company because Iwatani is a special, special talent. That's the one that I'm making to see. Do you think Mercedes Monet as Mercedes Monet Wrestles 10 matches in 2023. Say again. Do you think Mercedes Monet on the independent circuit with New Japan, Stardom, AEW, not WWE? Do you think she wrestles 10 matches this year? Yeah, I think she probably does. I think between major New Japan and major stardom events yeah I, I i would hope so i i hope it's not just like quarterly there and that's I, I would prefer something a little more frequently than that but now oh boy 10 that's a good over under though that's a good over under because you can do every other month and still get six or eight ish out of that hmm. so what's I, your thought do you think it's under i think it's under i think it's probably around the six to seven mark that we're going to be looking at for her and you know i've kind of felt that she's going to be back in WWE by SummerSlam. But I think this changed a lot of people's minds. And there are, I think, I think there are a lot of matches that she wants, but maybe people can't pay the money for. And maybe she's going to get matches and she's going to waive her price tag if there are no other way to have this match while she has an opportunity to do it. So we may get matches that we are just completely blown away by for no other reason that she wants to do it. And uh, I, yeah, I think she's a wrestling nerd and I mean yeah. that in the best possible way. And, and you could hear her talking about it in that YouTube thing. Like it means a lot to her that she wrestled somewhere where Eddie Guerrero was the black tiger. Yeah. Uh, it meant a lot to her that she was wrestling somewhere. Owen Hart had made a name with new Japan as a junior uh, all this is special to her, and but you still feel like, and it would be very WWE-ish to suddenly pay her now that she's one of the biggest stars for another company, even though it's a company that hardly ever runs the United States. So you can see Paul just saying, okay, what do you want? Come on back. Sure. And yeah, yeah, like, I know it. I might. This, is, this is all a business. These are all to raise the price tag to the people and to raise the value. You have, right. the, you have the Cody, you have the CM Punk. You have the Sasha Banks, Mercedes Monet. These are all following blueprints to raise their own value and make themselves more valuable to companies who have the money to pay them what they want to be paid. 
I'll tell you what, I don't see her working for AEW because the only way I see her in AEW is if she finds signs a three or four year contract, because right. I don't think Tony Khan's going to want to have her for a couple of shows. And then she goes back. I also he don't think may he can have to, her. if the demand to have her in there, at least for a match or WWE two. would match that offer and, or be that I don't, she would just have to call. It, Paul it, it's, and say call they offer it's all going to be a call business, yeah. but they're not going like, to yeah, there, there, there's a lot of things on the table. So, you know, she's not even sniffing that multiverse United or mm. multiverse impact new Japan show. Mm. But if she were ended up added to that card, I would not be shocked at all. And I, I do think she wants to wrestle some of these people, and I would love to see it. I mentioned some of those faction leaders right there. And, you know, Colin mentioning who would be, I'd love it to be Shuri again. You know, Shuri just dropped it to uh, Julia, so that's a possibility. She's always a top contender. I still think it's going to be Mayu Iwatani coming to the rescue for uh, the company there. That's that's still my guess on that. That's yeah, Iwatani needs kind of that run and the yeah. contract that, that they were – uh, working on when the title was kind of up in the air is I think believe settled down. So the issues are probably leveled off. Yeah. But boy, there's some great matchups there in, in stardom, Jeremy. I've been watching a lot more stardom uh, than usual uh, lately, just because they've been just had a lot of shows, man. There's some great talent there. And I keep watching these women just thinking, man, I just want to, I would love to see that. I'd love to see Kyrie against them and all that. Cause Kyrie and Iwatani for that title, when they established that belt, phenomenal match it might have been better than this one and that's a tough one tough call this uh, was like i said the best women's match i've ever seen live the only one that i could think of that matched it or came close to it is probably becky lynch versus charlotte versus asuka in a table ladders and chairs match <laughs> for the uh women's title that mm-hmm. ronda cost charlotte and asuka ended up winning the title that year okay but this yeah. was better <laughs> when Wrestle Circus was a company here in Austin, uh, we saw some pretty good matchups with uh, Tessa Blanchard. They built the women's title there around Tessa, and uh, she had some really solid ones with uh, Britt Baker and and uh, a few others there that were that were quite good. And so uh, that was probably be the best one I saw. I, I haven't really seen too many. I haven't seen many WWE pay-per-view level shows to where you get that kind of a great match between the women since the women's revolution and things like that. I just haven't right. gone to see. It has its place on the card, but it's never supposed to see that. Right. Well, you know, and they've, they've done some big things in manias and all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, anyway, the, uh, women's wrestling, it's uh, in a real nice spot right now where I think we're going to be seeing a lot more really good stuff. So you know what else move- is good stuff. Well, oh man, yeah, that one is. I tell you what, we yeah, we do need to move on there. Uh, the Zack Saber Jr. Clark Connors match. This was terrific. Again, they they keep teasing this fifteen minute limit. It's 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 hanging over the match the whole okay, time. Okay, remind they, me again. If they don't hit the fifteen, they flip <laughs> they flip a coin, right? No, no, no. Stop it! Stop with the coin thing. Oh, it's damn. over. The, the coin thing was only the tournament. No, the champion, oh, the champion retains. I, I love the idea of the coin flip. <laughs> no, the champion retains on a the, okay. on a on a draw. Champion retains on a draw. Now it would be so, so much more fun. Chaos. Clark, I want chaos. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. He, he, Jeremy chooses chaos every time. But uh, what we have here is Zack Saber Jr. Uh, against Clark Connors for that uh, TV title. This was the Clark Connors I like seeing. There was none of that doofiness that he had in the tag team tournament with Taguchi. 
He's not that doing. That hat was goofy. That hat was goofy. Well, that was more of an. He kind of came out with an Orville Peck look, uh, which is an. A, a, I don't know if you've seen Orville Peck. He's a country singer. Uh, that's a. That's a very interesting. Uh, always masked and uh, has the the, the type of uh, just that type of fringy mask over him uh, his uh, face and things. Uh, it, it reminded me a lot of that. Uh, in this one, Connor sold the submissions a lot early. He was out wrestled by Zach early in the match, but then Connors began hitting his moves and things picked up. And of course, Zach is really good at making guys look like they're almost on his level on the mat. He's yeah. terrific at carrying guys like that. And uh, again, this is the serious one. He wasn't doing the dollar store version of Adam Page, who's already a dime store version of Steve Austin anyhow. So the, the this was a much better way of seeing Clark and a much better presentation of Clark. Uh, rear naked choke by Connors. Uh, Zach really sold that well as, uh, as an, he was in real trouble. And, uh, but it ended up being an ankle lock into an arm bar for the tap out 14 minutes and six seconds on this one of a 15 minute time limit. Uh, really good match. I thought Connors showed up well. And of course, Zach is exactly the type of guy who can make someone like that look good. Everything about this match, it was crisp. You knew that it was going to be like a sprint match, that you didn't have to wait too long to get to the main event. So people were just like, all right, let's, let's do this. Uh, they made it clear in the in the, in the the audience, I believe, that it was a 15-minute match. So, yeah. you know, everyone everyone just kind of enjoyed themselves. Zach Sabre Jr. after the show was signing autographs and talking to people. Honestly, oh. like, if we're breaking kayfabe, one of the nicest people out there just – you know, I, I have a Kentuck story that I'll tell you later, but uh, <laughs> but this guy right here, just salt of the earth, good guy, uh, made time for everybody. And man, what a hell of a wrestler. Hell yeah. of a wrestler. That's great to hear. You know, the funny thing about Zach, when Zach was really turning up the jerk factor on his character uh, with Suzuki-Goon, early in his Suzuki-Goon run, uh, my girlfriend walked through the room and just looked at him and just goes, ugh. And I was like, what? <laughs> and she just goes, He's like every guy that was a dick to me in high school. <laughs> and I just thought, Damn well, then he's doing his job exactly right. He's supposed to be a jerk right there. But I, I also had a feeling that Zach was a decent dude. I always like, but you see some of his uh, backstage comments, uh, things, and you really get that idea too because he's he's funny and he's engaging and things. So that was, but yeah, fun to see him. Act. Yeah, yeah, well, it's worth mentioning too. And and uh, Brad's on our case here just to make sure we get that in. He he's exactly right. But we need to mention that uh, Kevin Knight was in the aisle uh, there, uh, clapping for Zach and uh, not laying out the full challenge on the microphone. But uh, you only do that if you know you're going to be getting the title shot here soon. So I, Kevin, I have to give New Japan credit here. They had mm -hmm. two matches that laid out future challenges, and once those matches were over, and then the challenges later on happened. Uh, you know, you had the Kevin Knight winning the match earlier, and we all kind of looked like Kevin Knight. Uh, all right, sure, whatever. Mm -hmm. And it had a reason. Yeah. And then David Finley in the prelims, him having a win also had a reason as well. So yeah. you know, I like these shows that within the within the universe of its own show, everything is kind of like tied to each other in some way. It just feels like there's a plan, and I love that. We then saw, well, before that one, we had to sit through <laughs> a match between Filthy Tom Waller and Homicide. This was a no rope. Well, I don't remember the stipulation. I don't care. Uh, Jeremy, <laughs> I don't have a lot to say about this. I was bored to tears during this. I don't like this kind of wrestling. And I don't think this was a good example of that, of a, that type of wrestling. So 
it was a garbage match. It was the same cliche weapons that are on AEW every week and WWE every week. It was uh, baking pans, which have no business being anywhere. There was uh, what, what the hell else was there? And there, uh, what else makes no sense? Oh, those aluminum garbage cans that are only used in professional wrestling are used nowhere else in the world except in pro wrestling. And everybody knows they don't hurt that much. Mm-hmm. Um, this was crap. And he pulled out a door for reasons known only to him, probably because he wasn't allowed to use a table. This sucked. I I, I don't like this stuff. Um, I don't think this was a good example of it. Tom Waller is much, much better than this. Homicide is not. But so we had to sit through this crap for like 15 minutes. And if nothing else, it gave me a chance to get up and uh, get some uh, snacks or something like that. But I don't know. What what was this like in the building? Because I couldn't stand it. We all were pretty much like, there were people that liked it because there are people that like that kind of match and they like the garbage and they like the the plunder and all that stuff. But it definitely, it didn't hit the same way. And I was watching the uh, Brian Alvarez show with Filthy Tom yesterday and he mm. himself admitted this was the worst match on the card. And it was yeah. just a matter of like, needed to be a change of pace. You know, you had the match before and the match after. You know, yeah, yeah, you, you had to, you had to do something to, you know, cleanse the palate, if you will, and uh, we had to ding dong hello through this door right here to get to the rest of the card. <laughs> nice, and Bailey was in the house for it. And the... Gigi Dole was nowhere to be seen. <laughs> no, no, Gigi would have been better uh, in this than Homicide. But the thing with me, and I just keep, I just get bored by this. You got Tom Waller, who's a UFC guy. Homicide, who does a street fighter gimmick where he'll just beat you to death, right? Maybe an I quit match instead of this shit. I just, I, don't know. I thought we were going to get like a closer to blood sport kind mm. of. I think match. that's what the idea was at first, but it didn't and really then, happen. And then we didn't. And then it kind of it lost me because I don't know if you saw this on the um, on the TV, but mm-hmm. Homicide just got up and walked away. Like he yeah. was fine after getting choked yeah. out. It was one of those like, all right, well, my work here is done. I'll see you later. <laughs> oh, God. And we're um, like, go oh, for a little bit, Hobbit. Somebody uh, carry you out. Anything. Nope. Just, all right, I'm awake. I'll see you later. Bye. As far as I'm concerned, hand the man his envelope and send him on his way. That's fine. Uh, so, anyway, moving on from that. For filthy. For filthy. We had before that, though, the loser leaves New Japan match between a man who's not in New Japan, uh, Eddie Kingston, and a man who is Jay White. So that kind of left us with a little bit of of an idea of who might win this thing. And again, this was one where, man, I don't want to see Jay White go, but I understand that he is probably going to be making more money than he ever has in his flipping life in the next few months. And good on him because he has earned that paycheck. And I know that uh, either WWE or AEW, leaning more perhaps toward Connecticut than than Jacksonville. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Who knows? But uh, I know either one of those people can pay him a heck of a lot more than New Japan does. He lives in Florida. He doesn't have to travel across the ocean. All I want him in New Japan. Damn it, he's the best heel in the world. I think, <sighs> those, I think those days are past, my friend. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. So this was as intense and hard-hitting as you White for all his hard work. I'm just going to say that now. Like the man, the man is a wrestling genius and he is incredibly good at counter-based wrestling. He, uh, he owns the ring and he owns the audience when he is in the ring. Steven, please continue. I just had to get that out there. 
No, that's okay. It was as hard hitting as you would expect with these two. They did uh, chop the living hell out of each other a lot. That was that seemed to be the the move of the day. And uh, you know, I know that I'm going to put this up here because Colin mentioned the same thing. <laughs> he does a chop fest and nothing more. <sighs> Colin, I got it totally on good wrong. authority that Eddie was still injured on this match and he did not want to. I'm pretty sure Jay White carried him through this match. That was the point, wasn't it, Jeremy? Because he had to back out of some other matches leading up to this one. Eddie did because he was hurt. And I think there was a thing where he couldn't do a whole heck of a lot, but he can throw chops and that's always going to kind of get a little bit of a response Mm -hmm. out of things. And you can do that kind of a respect Bushido contest as the, you know, the fighting spirit contest where you just chop the living crap out of each other there wasn't a whole lot of wrestling in this, even though it did go 1907 chop, and chop, I, power move, chop, chop, power move. Depending yeah. on who gave the power move. So it, it, it wasn't the best match. Uh, it did. It was emotional just because you realized what was happening here is the Jay's actually going to leave. And anyway, it did happen. A Northern lights driver on two uh, on, uh, got a two count. Uh, Eddie actually hugged Jay and hits a second Northern lights for the three count. Eddie was totally respectful to Jay White afterwards. He left immediately, was in the aisle, applauding for Jay, pointing at him, but he had to leave, didn't he? Because, <laughs> so uh, they did the whole thing where Jay, this is his last match, he's done. Uh, it, it's another reason why he had ghetto stay back, quote unquote, as mm-hmm. part of the storyline. He said, no, 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 I need some time, so I don't want you to come to San Jose. They had to, you know, had to write him off the, the whole program, so... They announced in the audience that Bullet Club was banned from ringside. Yeah. So Eddie is there. He leaves. He's showing all kinds of respect for Jay. He even asked them to cut off his music, although he didn't. Uh, but uh, they played him out. But anyway, he left. Jay struggling to his feet. We think we're finally going to get the little post-match speech, the goodbye speech. He picks up the microphone. Someone slides in the ring. He turns around. And he takes a shillelagh to the noggin, Jeremy. A shillelagh? Who could that dastardly person be? David Finlay, who <sighs> earlier had beaten Bobby Fish in a decent little pre-show match that was nothing special but was not supposed to be, as it turns out. He was supposed to be a little bit of a sleeper agent there. We knew he was there, but we didn't know he was going to be important. Uh, I thought it then- was a tune-up match for the New Japan Cup to make him a potential uh, challenger for Scott Saber Jr. in the bracket. Like well, it was just know- kind of give him a win and set him up for that. Nope, bigger plans. Bigger plans. So he lays out uh, Jay White with the shillelagh. Afterwards, he gets on the microphone, and does the same uh, "No one respects me" promo that we've heard about a thousand times. But it was fiery, and he had some. Uh, he had some. He had some emotion into it, and you can tell he understood that this was a big deal. Uh, the content of it was about the same. You people never liked me as much as you should have. All that stuff. So. Uh, I guess the question is, uh, will he take over Bullet Club? What's Ghetto's reaction to this? Is he even in Bullet Club? He didn't specifically what did, say. What did they say on the commentary? They just said, what a bastard for doing this. You know, because they were all in the, oh, Jay, we're going to miss you camp. And it was Ian Riccoboni and Matt Reinhold. Uh, and it, and they did a pretty good job overnight. There were some missed calls in there a little bit. So there were some, there were some uh, missed things. But... They just kind of just said, what a bastard. But there was no talk of he's now taken over Bullet Club. It's no, none of that. Nothing. None of that. So I don't I don't think I don't think he's the guy to do that. But I do think he's a guy to be elevated off of 
taking out Jay White in some way, shape, or form to give him a little bit of an edge. Because he had a fantastic match with Osprey back in September that we were both raving about after he came off of the G1 where he really did look better. And then he just kind of disappeared for a little while. Mm-hmm. And he just he didn't have much going on between now and then. And so now he's here. I would not be shocked if they are slow playing the rollout of him into Bolt Club, into the leadership, because he he does have that kind of pedigree, and you don't have to do it all in one night, obviously. But I also, if he was doing something different, I also wouldn't be shocked if he wasn't in Bolt Club. They could also reunite him with in Finn Juice because Juice is part of Bullet Club already, and make that in the heel side of it. They could do that, and that so they could bring him in in a lot of ways. It's it's definitely possible. There wasn't much for him to do as a babyface, was there? Really? I mean, who who was he going to challenge? Who was he going to go after? Now he can go after Tamatanga and the Neverweight title if he wants to. He, there are things Finley can do that TV title, like you mentioned. There are mm-hmm. things Finley can do as a heel where he really wasn't a strong candidate as a babyface. So I think it's going to help his career. I think the guy's good. And sometimes, as we've seen with many people, just that heel turn is exactly what you need to bring out the personality, bring out the strong part of your work. So we'll see. This is Dave's big chance, and I think he's probably going to do everything he can to seize it, and we'll see how far he can go with it. He's got enough resources to learn how to do it right that if he if he misses on this, it's not for a lack of the ability to do so. Before that one, we had a tag team match, a quick one, as a, for a matter as a matter of fact, an NJPW strong open weight tag team title match. The Motor City Machine Guns, Chris Saban and Alex Shelley, they defeated the West Coast Wrecking Crew, Royce Isaacs and Jarrell Nelson. This is quick. It was under ten minutes, nine twenty one, but it was fun. Uh, Shelley sold a lot. He played the Ricky Morton. He got a warm tag to Chris Saban early. Then they cut him off again. Uh, but uh, after a while, there was more selling. A really good ass cutter from Jarrell Nelson, by the way. He hit that thing. That looked terrific. Uh, but once the that main tag was going and the Motor City Machine Guns got rolling, there were a lot of teamwork moves in there, and they hit a bunch of them in a row on, on Nelson, hit the dirt bomb. Nothing wrong with it, but it didn't feel a whole lot different than a TV match. I was surprised the Motor City Machine Guns are going to be around for a little bit. Um, I kind of thought that they might put the West Coast Wrecking Crew over and, you know, kind of keep those belts uh, internally because I don't think the guns are uh, are contracted, really. I think they're on a per-date basis. So uh, I was surprised by the finish. I thought the match was fun. It was perfectly placed in order to just one and done, keep on moving the, keep on moving the card along. And what they moved it on from was uh, another title change on the show. This was Kenta and Fred Rosser. And you had this one scouted out pretty well, Jeremy. This was a, a pretty darn good match. I enjoyed it. Uh, Rosser challenged him to fight on the floor. And that kind of got the crowd going in this one. I'm not sure how we mentioned before. Rosser struggling a little bit to connect sometimes with the crowd as a baby face right here, but I thought this was a savvy move, actually. I don't know who suggested it, but the idea of him just saying, no, jumping out of the ring, going over the barricade and saying, fight me out here. That kind of got the crowd cooking a little bit in this one where it might not have been before. Uh, Kenta act- the room, And when he has uh, an opponent at like Kenta's level, I think that his matches were better served. My whole criticism of his run as a babyface champion is that I never felt like the caliber of his opponents were all that like terrifying. Okay. You know, like you had a couple here or there, but like, I just, I was always underwhelmed and that was my main like critique of it. It was like this guy 
has been with Strong and you built him up. And now that he has the championship, like you're just, you're not booking him well. Yeah. And so we had this here where Kenta was acting very dismissive of Rosser for a lot of the match, doing little pie faces and uh, pie boots where he would just kind of put his foot on his face and shove it, you know, that type of thing. That would get Rosser good and pissed off. Uh, the uh, He hit a double stomp for two, a chicken wing from Rosser, of course, where Rosser uh, learned the chicken wing from Bob Backlund himself, and he got a near submission out of that. Uh, Kenta did the thing that he did in uh, Japan also, where he started grabbing the ref to get himself out of trouble and uh, threw him in. I, I forgot that uh, Mercedes Benet actually did the same thing, threw the referee in front of a cutlass, and uh, <laughs> the ref took it well, by the way. But anyway, in this one, he finally got the ref bump. Uh, this is, again, similar to what he did against Hiroshi Tanahashi. Uh, the his GTS was uh, countered. Now, Jeremy, tell us a little bit in the building as CM Punk is sitting in the rafters, and the man who <laughs> the man who originated that move, Kenta, is in the ring. Uh, tell us a little bit about that moment. I honestly did not think about it. And I thought about more how amused I was that Punk is watching Eddie Kingston wrestle a match of his own free will. <laughs> yeah. uh, to be honest, and then uh, Kenta actually trolled the shit out of him with yeah. this photo. Uh, that JJ did and uh, told his biggest fan how he appreciated he was there, I believe. So, uh, <laughs> what, what are you, Punk, Punk off or wasn't something? wasn't really the story at, like, at the show. Like, it was cool he was there and there were like, there were fans that were coming up to him and kind of in like that bad faith. I'm like, just let the man enjoy the show kind of thing. But mm-hmm. there was a line for people to take like a photo opportunity. It was really cool about it. But uh, it, Kento was the face in this in this match. Did that come across in the in the broadcast? No, it was in not portrayed building, that way by the broadcasters at all. Kento not portrayed was by the broadcasters. Cheered ninety ten. He was no. the guy they wanted to win when no. the ref bump happened, and uh, he he tapped. Or like people were like booing, like don't don't tap. And then when he won, they were cheering. Like it was even even though Juke like did the interference and everything like that. Kento was far and away the the face of the match and i thought that was an interesting dynamic the commentary was definitely on rosser's side and kent is a bastard type of thing so uh that was a and again the they crowd were, wasn't microphoned real well so you couldn't really tell in fact there were, were sometimes when the music was playing you couldn't even hear the commentary you couldn't hear ian and Matt. uh but uh yeah they were definitely promoting the whole thing you know bullet club what a bunch of jerks mm. and uh rosser is the uh the the good guy trying to overcome things so uh, yeah, but anyway, he he countered the GTS. Now, once the referee was down, Juice Robinson came out and leveled Fred Rosser with a roll of coins, which exploded beautifully uh, all over the place. And uh, it reminded me of the whole Roddy Piper thing. But Roddy Piper used to use a roll of coins to great effect, and he would either allow them to fly out of his hand after using them just to get that visual, or it, it, one of my favorites where... Um, Magnificent when he turned babyface, magnificent Morocco was going to hit him from behind and he spun around and hit Morocco. Morocco sold it like he would have been shot from the rafters and just totally unconscious. And then Piper just took the little thing and just let go of his hand, and all these coins landed on Morocco's chest. Uh, I had no idea he hit him with a roll of coins in the ring. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, no, no we had no in. idea. No, and they actually got, popped. got popped in the got popped in the knuckle, and we didn't know. No, no, no coins idea. flew around. It, it did not, it did not translate in the in the audience at all. 
Well, there you go. So he ended up putting the GTS on him and got three. So I'm, I'm su sure that Ross will now move into a feud with Juice Robinson for screwing him over. Kent is the new strong champion. And uh, it, it opens up some uh, possibilities on that side for the baby faces to get some title matches. So quick, quick story. After after the show, I'm just uh, I'm on a stair to talk to some folks. And Kenta walked by. Power, not, as, not as fashion power walk, but legitimate power walk and pace. Direct focus, straightforward. I see him about 20 feet out, and I just yell, hey, Kenta, thanks for a great night. You had a great match. I appreciate you, buddy. And he just waved his hand, <laughs> kept on walking, acknowledged me, and I was like, that is the most Kenta move ever. That's very Kenta. There you go. So, yeah, there you go. So, uh, yeah, I guess the coins didn't necessarily come off to everyone. Some people did see him, though. Uh, Flam Flaming Shark saw him, thankfully. So I'm sure they'll be happy to hear that at least that came across. Like, I was yeah. as far back from the ring that you could be. I was on a curved back end of the building so wherever juice was at the front of the ring was the other side of the ring for me so yeah. it was just it was not gonna work for me in any way <laughs> up next uh well not before that i mean up next in our commentary but before it in the show this was the opener of the regular show first time i could hear anything as a fan at home uh because uh we couldn't hear anything at all during the pre-show and then didn't see anything for 45 minutes it was on a bit of an acid trip the, the old <laughs> video just looked like just lines i sent you a picture uh of my tv while you were sitting in the arena so well, yeah. here's my view i'm uh, very glad to know that they were aware of all that and didn't start the show anyway here was the opener fun uh eight-man tag between Kushida, volador jr kevin knight and the dkc against josh alexander the impact champion mascarada mascara dorada i'll get it right mascara dorada sorry mascara rocky romero and adrian quest now there are a lot of subtext to this one. Of course, Kushida and Josh Alexander are uh, going to be facing each other for that Impact title on Impact Wrestling, of course. And then you have Rocky Romero and Volador Jr. in a terrific feud in CMLL right now. I mean, really good stuff, Jeremy. And so this was a bit of a preview. It was a bit of a, a further chapter in that. Uh, it was also a way to get Kevin Knight a victory because they had plans for him later, coming out and applauding for Zach. So... It didn't go too long. It was 11 minutes and 22 seconds, but man, it, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I personally am not a DKC guy. I think he has, he tries to do all this karate stuff and it all looks pretty white belt level to me. Uh, so I, I don't, I don't care for him all that much, but uh, some, the Alexander Kashida stuff with the mat wrestling uh, setting up their title match was fun. Volador and Rocky with Rocky running away from Volador and then trying to do the sneaky style stuff with them. I enjoyed that. Uh, Dorada did some flying. This is just what you'd expect. Uh, Kushida uh, won with the uh, hoverboard lock on Adrian. He got the hoverboard lock on Adrian Quest. Uh, you know, no, 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 no. He did. That's not how it happened. Oh, Kevin Knight? Knight got the pin. Got the Kevin Knight got the pin. Oh, the submission. On the spike okay. DDT while Kushida had the hoverboard lock. Oh, okay, okay. okay. So Kevin Knight got the rub for the win that he used to challenge uh, Zach Saber Jr. for the for the sprint title. Win. Oh, okay. Gotcha. There you go. Fun match, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kevin Knight. Kevin Knight looks great. He's definitely glown up uh, even more so from the best of the Super Juniors tag tournament that he had with Kushida uh, four months ago. Like, I wasn't, I didn't think he had the greatest performance there, but I can't argue that he has just been leaps and bounds improving from the time he spent with, working with Kushida. And uh, Colin was asking here if Rocky's going to be on the Fantastica Mania Tour. I don't believe he is. I think he's actually uh, back in uh, – I don't think he's on those shows. But we can double-check that, and we'll take a look. But, uh, yeah, uh, 
In fact, I can do that in just in a little bit. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he just shows up to Beth with Volador. Um, yeah, he's not actively on the card. Yeah. So, uh, and, and of course, that stuff's still going on in Arena Mexico. It's fabulous. Uh, although I guess it's going to take a little break because Volador is going to be in Japan. Uh, Alex Coughlin defeated J.R. Kratos in the first match. Uh, and uh, yeah, oh, it's worth mentioning, by the way, Kevin Knight against Zack Sabre Jr. It's been mentioned a couple of times by our viewers here. Nice little clash of styles. It'll be fun to see how that's worked. Because uh, certainly, Zach, do you think? I'm down. Yeah, I mean, it makes yeah. a lot of sense, right there. They will need something strongish for that uh, show, and that would be a good one. Uh, David Finlay, of course, defeated Bobby Fish in about ten minutes. Uh, it was fine, solid. No hint of what was to come at all. Uh, Finlay didn't wrestle heelish. Uh, it was that Shillelagh shot that really uh, made it. And uh, Alex Coughlin over Kratos. Uh, Kratos, of course, huge guy threw Alex Coughlin around for a while, but it all built up to Coughlin using his power. That guy is crazy strong, isn't it? Alex Coughlin. He, uh, he's, he's fantastic. So this is, this is the first match that he had not as a young lion because he, mm-hmm. as a young lion was having feuds with J.R. Kratos and he won that feud eventually. Now he is a full fledged member of the roster and he has dispatched Kratos again. So it feels as if, we have a time where the young lions are starting to elevate. Uh, Alex Coughlin and Clark Connors are getting their opportunities and will continue to get so. And we should mention that former young lion Carl Fredericks is now a new name in WWE, and he had his match this weekend well, level up, and his name is Eddie Thorpe, which is a mashup of Jim Thorpe and Eddie Guerrero, probably uh, two tribute names that he felt strong. Not the most exciting name, but one can understand why he did it. Yeah, best of luck to him. So, Young Lions, growing up fast. It was mentioned on commentary as well that Kevin Knight had his own gear and was no longer in the Young Lion outfits either. So, there you go. So, yeah, exactly. That was a, a part of the theme of the night. So, we move on from here, uh, Jeremy, to Fantascomania. That's the next tour. It's starting to, uh, the first show is going to be on New Japan World uh, tomorrow, I believe. So uh, here's yeah, some I just of the people. I a couple of photos to give you the vibe of the uh, thing, but I am man, Tem- man, very Templario behind has a cool on mask. all of the Fantastic Mania research. <laughs> and Templario has a cool mask. I love the Templario mask. I got to get one of those next time I'm in Mexico. I got a Mystico one last time I was there. Anyway, uh, Ray Cometa, Dolce Gardenia, uh, the Exotico, uh, Titan, of course, uh, Magia Blanca, Volador Jr., Atlantis Jr., Ultimo Guerrero, Soberano Jr., uh, Captain Cicida, uh, Hijo de Viano Tercera, that's a uh, son of Viano III. Uh, Viano III, one of the best. Boy, he was fantastic. Of course, Atlantis, uh, his son, uh, Atlantis, one of the best ever. Uh, Okamura, who, uh, again, a, a Japanese guy that went on excursion, never came back, just stayed in Mexico forever. Uh, uh, Barbaro Carbonario, always entertaining and a really good wrestler. Templario, Hechicero, Mistico. Uh, some of the highlighted matches from that Titan against Soberano Jr. for the CMLL welterweight title will be on this uh, show or uh, this tour. You got to think Titan's going to end up looking strong. He's the guy that's a regular with LIJ, of course. Some and then multi bad matches look bonkers, dude. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Air shows for sure. Air shows for sure. Dives galore. No barricades Uchi, as usual. Wado, Taguchi, and Soberano Jr. versus Bushi, Takahashi, Naito, and Titan. You kidding me? I will say that if you're sitting in the front row in Japan for any of these t- Fantastic Mania shows, don't keep your drink in your lap. It's, <laughs> it's probably going to get smooshed and splashed all over you. Just don't. So we have one cheering event here, huh? And yeah. is that the finals of the tournament? I believe so, yes. And they're doing an odd couples tournament there where uh, a baby face and a heel or a Rudo and Technico in uh, 
Lucha Libre terms will be forced to team with each other and try to get along. Uh, another key match, Mystico against Atlantis Jr. That's going to be fantastic. Those are two terrific uh, wrestlers there. So Fantastic Mania, always fun, uh, always uh, high-flying and high-energy it's a, it's a nice little break, a change of pace. And, and we're going to uh, do our best enjoy. to recap it as best we can, given I don't know half of the wrestlers. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to, I'll, I'll have to carry that. I can do some of that. Hold so. my hand, Stephen, hold yeah, my I got hand. You. I got you, I got you. Uh, but by the way, uh, CMLL, I recommend anybody, if you have time, there's so much great wrestling, but CMLL uh, does put their Friday night shows, and of course their big shows, Super BNA, Super Friday, at Arena Mexico, they're drawing 10 to 12,000 people every single Friday, Jeremy, right now to the Arena Mexico and having terrific shows. They do go up on the CMLL YouTube page uh, a day or two later. Sometimes they do uh, what's called kind of a, uh, an eye pay-per-view, and those still go up on the YouTube page just a couple of weeks after, though. So sometimes you have to wait. But a lot of the Friday shows are right up there. They're worth a look. They're worth a look. It's a very different style. You're not. It, it doesn't look like Japanese pro wrestling. doesn't look like American wrestling. Some talent there, though. It's fun. After that, anniversary show coming up, Jeremy. This is a big one. Uh, of course, we have uh, on the first, we also have whatever Hiromu Takahashi's Junior Heavyweight Festival is. We don't have a lineup. We'd love to talk more about it. Don't know who's going to be there. <laughs> Hiromu, uh, we know Hiromu. We think Hiromu's going to be there. We're confident of that. Uh, oh, other than that, no. we'll talk about it more when we know more, but we don't have a whole lot. So... The anniversary show at Order War Gym. Here we have uh, some stuff. We have some key matches for this one, Jeremy. It is uh, Leo Rush and Yo will face Hiromu and Bushi. That's going to set up Leo Rush's title match later in the month. We'll have a couple of New Japan Cup first-round matches. Shota Umino and Yujiro Takahashi is one of them. I think we know who's going to win that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I still am holding by my uh, prediction that he makes at least the semifinals, Shota, of the New Japan Cup. We'll see. David yeah. Finlay against Ishii in the New Japan Cup. And, of course, Battle in the Valley gives this one a new dimension, doesn't it? It also takes away the doubt as to who's going to win it, in my mind. Uh, Finlay's heel push, I believe, is going to get its first real chapter at and this one in Japan. Yeah. So what, what do you think? you think he's going to go uh, deep in this thing? Yeah, there's only one There's only one sharing show on the Fantastica Mania, according to the New Japan thing. Uh, Finlay, yeah. I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to the... Um, I'm going to go back to the, he's going to get to that Saber Jr. That Saber Jr. is going to end his run some way, shape, or form uh, in the semifinals. Because I think that Saber Jr. is the winner last year, should at least be in the final four this year. And Finley's okay. in that same quarter, quarter. And given everything going on, he could end up being the challenger for that Saber Jr. after Kevin Knight. There you have it. Yeah. We will also see, of course. Now, normally we get the junior heavyweight champion against the heavyweight champion. It's usually a good match that the heavyweight champion always flipping wins. I'm we okay also have the same match last year. I'm also, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about this, shaking it all up. We have Yo, uh, Okada and Tanahashi. They are forming, reforming their dream team, and they are taking on Yoshihashi and Goto Bishamon. Uh, Hiroki Goto and Yoshihashi for the, new, the tag team titles. I don't figure this is one that Tanahashi can lose. And uh, Bishamon can hold on to the titles. I don't really see them doing what if a they won? Title thing. I, they could. I mean, they could. I Why just, not? But <laughs> I think Okada's busy enough. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I... having to defend like the titles, like uh, like having to do title matches. If he had like these tag titles, mm -hmm. you know, he he would have more matches with people that I don't know for for a couple months. Who cares? Why not? Like yeah, no, I, I mean, love you know, Yoshihashi as a team, but 
we we did this dance and it would make the anniversary event feel like it's not just a placeholder in there. It's something like really consequential like this happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it'll be, it'll be an interesting match right there. So those are the key matches that'll be at the Oda War gym. Of course, the birthplace of new Japan pro wrestling is where the first show was. It's where the anniversary show will be on the sixth. So anything else you wanted to add, Jeremy, I've got a little bit of history. We're going to be talking here in a second. Uh, anything else on your mind uh, before we go into that? Uh, we're going to do some bracketology kind of breaking down the, the new Japan cup next week. I think other than mm-hmm. that, uh, maybe we'll have a guest, not hundred percent sure on that one. Maybe we'll just, you know, use our brains and our brawn to figure this out on our own. Who knows? But uh, other vi- than that, what, uh, what's your history lesson today? Well, it, it's an interesting bracket to discuss, isn't it? So that bracketology show is going to be interesting no matter what, because they, they gave us some things to think about with this bracket. You need some new Japan experts to really parse that one because <laughs> it's not a whole lot of outside talent. <laughs> So we're going to talk a little bit about Keiji Budo, who just had his retirement match. And of course, uh, it's not going to be his retirement match. It's uh, his retirement match is, wasn't it? So, uh, but we're going to talk a little bit about him and it's going to take more than one. And, you know, we don't have a ton of time here left today, but we're going to talk about it a little bit as a child. Keiji Mudo was a good athlete, amateur wrestler, uh, judo, uh, and, and did pretty well in judo. I believe got a black belt. Don't quote me on that necessarily, but I believe he was up in that range right there. He ended up joining the dojo. He was trained by Fujinami and all the guys there at the uh, New Japan Dojo. And he made his professional wrestling debut on October 5th, 1984 in Koshigaya, at the Fighting Spirit Tour Day 1. So it was the first day of this tour, Jeremy. And I thought I would bring up the card just to see it. Now, he was in the very first match, but he had a lot of very interesting contemporaries here. So Kaiji Muto was in the opener, and you had Keiji Muto defeating Masahiro Chono in the opener. It was the, That was his first match. He faced his all-time rival, Chono. Now, we mentioned before that the three musketeers from that era were Muto, Chono, and Shinny Hashimoto. Shinny Hashimoto was in the second match on the card. He faced Kim Soo Hong. So all these guys were right there together from the very, very beginning of Muto's career. Uh, some other people that were on that show in the third match uh, was uh, Makoto Arakawa and Naoki Sano, who's Trevick Jr., against uh, Tetsuyoshi Goto and a guy named Keiichi Yamada, who now is known as Jushin Thunder Liger. So that was before he had the Liger mask on and anything like that. So uh, some of the other people that were on there, the Black Tiger, that was Mark Rocco, of course, who had the legendary feud with Tiger Mask, uh, the Black Cat. Bad News Allen was on that. It was eventually Bad News Brown in WWF, but Bad News Allen, the uh, legend from Florida and uh, Calgary wrestling, is, is Bad News Allen is a, a terrific heel. Bret Hart on the show. Uh, Sunji Takano defeated him by countout on there. Uh, and you had, let's see, the, the Cobra, uh, George Takano was there. And the main event of that one, Jeremy, uh, this might be interesting to you, uh, Antonio Inoki, Tatsumi Fujinami, and Kengo Kimura, the big three from that time, baby faces, defeated Brian Blair, one half of the Killer Bees, uh, Bob Orton Jr., and the mass superstar, Bill Eady, who, of course, was eventually one half of Demolition. So that was the context of his very of his debut, his very first match. So was that uh and then he had a lot of those things with uh he had a lot of those types of matches where he was basically going 50 50 with the other young wrestlers so to give you an idea his record in 1984 was 23 18 and 5 so it's a little different than the young lions now who are just losing 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 
they had these guys wrestling each other mostly very early in the card. So it was more of a 50 50 process, but never in a real prominent spot. Uh, Shiro Koshinaka was not on that first card, but he was also part of uh, that era and uh, one of the younger guys in the company then. And he would end up playing a big part in Muda's early career. In 1985, he was still wrestling pretty much in the prelims. He was uh, 46 wins, 50 losses, and five draws. So again, still doing the 50-50 thing, wrestling other guys at around his level. And of course, he would do jobs to anybody anytime they put him in there with the top guys like Kimura or uh, Fujiwara or Inoki and Sekiguchi, all those guys just not on that level. So they have the same similar structure. He got wins against the other guys at his level. His first excursion was in 1986 to Florida. He went to championship wrestling in Florida at first. He started on February 4th, 1986 on a big show. He started at the Battle of the Belts 2. That was a major card. And he was brought in as a disciple of Kendo Nagasaki who was a guy, uh, this is a different guy than the British Kendo Nagasaki. This was a guy who was basically the guy you booked when you couldn't get the great Kabuki. Mm. So he did basically the same gimmick. So face painted, mist, all that stuff. Sound familiar? We'll get to that. Uh, but he was the he was known as the White Ninja. And uh, his first match, he lost to Denny Brown by disqualification, probably when either he or uh, Nagasaki did something mean to, to Denny. And his early opponents were... Uh, Jim Backlund, who would later be known as Jimmy Del Rey from the Heavenly Bodies, uh, Jerry Gray, the Fabulous Ones, uh, Steve Kern, Stan Lane, and Kendall Windham. Now, Kendall Windham uh, was the guy he won his first title from. Now, he won the Florida title from Kendall, but it was returned when, ready, Jeremy, mm. video footage showed that he used karate. Can't do it. So he used karate <laughs> now. So video footage, <laughs> video footage show. I love how that was. I loved how that was worded. Uh, they went back and looked at the tape, and by God, he used karate in the match. And I guess the referee either didn't notice or didn't see. It was Florida, so he probably got bumped. Uh, but the uh, yeah, he ended up having to give that title belt back uh, right away. He also won the southeastern title from Tim Horner, but that was immediately returned to Tim Horner because of outside interference from Nagasaki. So. You know, no luck whatsoever. He, so he won two titles but never had any reigns. They were returned immediately. He never defended either one of them. So, uh, yeah, so he was the understudy for Nagasaki there in Florida. So he finished up that. Uh, so that was in uh, February of 1987 is when he went down there. Uh, 86, excuse me, February of 86. And he was back in Japan uh, at, at the end of September of 1986. Now, when he came back, though, so he's gone from... Uh, basically, basically seven months. Uh, when he came back, his position drastically changed. So instead of wrestling prelim guys and other youngish lions, he came back and his first match back was part of the Tokan series. Uh, and, and it was a Korokan Hall. And it was a match against Tatsumi Fujinami in which chairs were legal. So you talk about being i don't know i don't know uh i don't have context unfortunately but it, okay sure. <laughs> it does show that he was put back in with one of the biggest stars of new japan at the time right and he did lose that match but still uh he ended up uh wrestling with seiji sakaguchi that's enoki's right hand man and one of the top stars there they defeated uh the jackal and congo the barbarian the, the barbarian from jim crockett promotions and later one half of the head shrinkers but after that his, his opponents were guys like Fujinami and teaming with Sakaguchi against uh, Bad News Allen and uh, Kengo Kimura. He started teaming with Kengo and, and he actually defeated at Corican Hall, Antonio Inoki and Kevin Von Erich. 
Keji Muto and Kengo Kimura beat Anoki and Von and Von Eric on that show. And uh like a pretty big card. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh he wrestled Jimmy Snuka. Uh and so Jimmy Dick Murdoch and Jimmy Snuka and uh you know that Muto, this is an interesting one, and and Fujinami uh, as part of the New Japan Cup tag team league. He teamed with Fujinami, so one of the biggest stars in the company now. This is no longer a prelim guy. And he defeated Kendo Nagasaki and Mr. Pogo in the Japan Cup Tag League. Now, so he faced the guy that he had been a mentor of and Mr. Pogo, who was also basically doing a great kabuki gimmick. There were three of them running around the South, but they're basically all doing the same gimmick in the United States. And I guess they just brought them all in. Why not? Because I think kabuki was working with all Japan at the time. So uh, when you can't get kabuki, get two fake kabukis. And uh, so, yeah, anyway, he came back and he was in a much better spot in, in March of 1987, captured his first New Japan title. He got to keep this one for a little while. He and Shiro Koshinaka defeated Nobuhiku Takata, who would go on to be the biggest star of the UWFI promotion, that shoot wrestling uh, promotion, and Akira Maeda, who created shoot wrestling by kicking the living shit out of Ricky Choshu when he wasn't looking. So that was that. That was in the finals of a tournament on uh, March 20th of 1987, uh, that uh, tournament to crown new champions because Kengo Kimura and Tatsumi Fujinami had split up as champions. But they were put over in this tournament. Uh, they only held the title for a week, though, before they lost it to Takata and Maeda. So mm-hmm. can't catch a break. It's a, He barely has time to get these belts warm around his waist before they're taken away from him. But here are some of the other opponents he had in 1987 that I thought were interesting here, Jeremy. He wrestled Owen Hart. This is when Owen Hart, if you ever seen Owen Hart in New Japan, my God, what he was amazing. A phenomenal uh, man, talent, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, just crazy. Uh, and great matches against guys like Liger and things. Scott Hall. He wrestled Scott Hall. Uh, Black Tiger, of course. Mark Rocco right there. The Warlord. If you remember the Warlord from Jim Crockett Promotions, yes, good, luck with, good luck with that one. If you can get a good match out of that guy, you know you're a good worker. Uh, Ricky Choshu, Masa Saito, all the top guys. Which is why it is particularly interesting that after having that run, going over on his excursion, doing well enough in Florida that they came back and put him in a main event spot, they sent him away again at the beginning of 1988. So after all of that, he had been put over in this tournament and everything else. He ended up in Puerto Rico at the beginning of 1988 as the Super Black Ninja. And he was there for a little while. There's not a lot of records of WWC uh, from that era. So we don't really know too much of what he did. We know he lost a hair match against Miguel Perez, but not a whole lot else from that uh, run in Puerto Rico. He then moved on to Texas. He was reunited with Kendo Nagasaki there. And Gary Hart had been the booker and he created the great Kabuki gimmick. And there's a reason I'm mentioning all this because he and he really stuck to Kabuki like glue there as the, the when he was the top heel manager and he pushed Kabuki hard. Kabuki ended up leaving. Well, he brought Kendo Nagasaki in to get to be the junior varsity Kabuki and then put Muda back with him. That ended up being a key thing. So being in Texas in 1988, a lot of the bloom was off the world class championship wrestling rose by then. Mm. It just was starting to fade a little bit business wise. And the point, though, was Gary Hart got a good look at the guy with Kendo Nagasaki and started to think, I might have a, a, what I always really wanted, which is a new great Kabuki here. And so he worked with all the top stars in Dallas, though, Chavo Guerrero, all the Von Erics. And at that time, though, Gary was moving to Jim Crockett Promotions 
and so was Keiji Muto. And so uh, after being through most of 1988 in Texas and Puerto Rico on March 12th, 1989 at the WTBS studios in Atlanta, Georgia, a guy named Cougar J spent one minute and 24 seconds in the ring with this new guy that Gary Hart was bringing in named the great Muta. And that yeah. was when, that was when he began the run that we all first learned of this guy from as Gary Hart recognized, I might have something, someone who's even better than the original great Kabuki. Cause he had this explosive young, fast, exciting talent. And uh, he was about to show, WCW, something they really hadn't seen before in terms of uh, Japanese uh, talent and charisma. Uh, sometimes Japanese stars wrestled very well, not always the most charismatic as it translated here. Killer Khan had heel charisma. Some of the other guys were very buttoned down and, and seemed a little too reserved for American wrestling. Well, Keiji Muto didn't have that problem. So as we get into this more in uh, coming weeks, we'll talk a little bit more about his famous run in WCW as a great Muda and what happened after that. So nice uh you got any uh anything to plug before we uh wrap this thing up well i mean i am you know i've been working with uh you know some of the stuff of scott edwards coming up that i'll be talking about on here we've got of course all of the different shows uh we're, we're, we're getting into wrestlemania season Ooh. so i know you and i are going to be involved with some of the shows leading up to wrestlemania on the fight game media Push network on on fight game media where we're weekly tracking yeah. what we happen with uh with the WWE path to WrestleMania. Yeah. Also, I, also, I got a, I got a show tonight with mm -hmm. uh, AD Oliva from Break for Impact, where cool. he and I are going to break down the latest Ant Man and Wasp Quantum Mania movie for Fight Game Media. I promise you, I went deep on this, deep. <laughs> so I, there will be something that I you will not have known before you come in, and you will learn something about Marvel coming out of it. That is my wow. promise to you. Okay, considering all the coverage of Marvel, if you manage to find something that people haven't talked about before, that's going to be pretty cool. I'll try to get a listen to that. I'm and thank you, Fighting Shark. Carl I Sagan. I'm going to bring Carl Sagan into this. Mm. Wow. All right. And thank you, yeah. Flaming Shark. That was nice of you to say. I, you I did much. enjoy putting that thing together on uh, on Muda. We're going to talk more about a very fascinating dude. Uh, KG Muda was... Uh, Colin, I'm going to say that you're talking about our show and not the Noah show. But <laughs> if you meant the Noah show, you could also mean that this was this show today. <laughs> what a show that was today. Absolutely yeah. right. And with that, Stephen Conway, let's wrap it up. All right. I'm available at Stephen Conway 88 on Twitter. And uh, of course, like I mentioned, Fight Game Media contributor. My history site is ringsidereplay.com. Jeremy, go ahead. Uh, you can find me at Jeremy Fivestone. Told you where you could find me in the near future. Good time. Thanks for, thanks for listening. Next week, bracketology, more news. It always keeps coming faster and faster. Hopefully, we'll get some word on this junior heavyweight show. There's going to be a lot of exciting stuff. Make sure you're with us here on uh, YouTube Live and then, of course, our podcast version four. Jeremy Feinstone, I'm Stephen Conway. Thank you so much for joining us for Speaking a Strong Style. We'll see you again real soon.